Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 496th episode of Constructed Chrism. I'm your host, Mason, joined by my co-host, Abe Stein. Abe, how you doing? I am doing fantastic, Mason. How was coverage over the weekend? It was really awesome. You know, I got to commentate my first RC, had a great time doing that with Niall, got to cover some really uh, exciting rounds and some really innovative decks. You know, how many people get to say they cover, you know, Martyr Proc Control at an RC? Very few. You know, and I got to do it twice. So, it's a good time. That's sick. Sad I couldn't make it on a coverage. I probably should have just, like, done more winning. But, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. But we'll go over your RC experience later in the show. But first, we do need to be doing Always Improving Abe. That is the main point of the show. And you were gone last week. How are you always improving? So, there's a lot of things that I did over the last week that, uh, like, come under this. But the one that I want to talk about the most is um, I actually just read a really, really good book uh, on my way to and from the RC over the weekend called How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. And it's a book about, like, redefining and reclaiming the idea of, like, productivity and how you use your time. And it was a really, like, eye-opening experience reading this book about kind of how it is we think and devote our attention and the value in retaining control over that and using that as a means for, um, you know, being the person you want to be rather than in this context in the book, like what maybe, you know, social media platforms and algorithms that, uh, you know, companies use want us to be. And it just like really has me thinking a lot about how I use my attention and then also like how that can apply to magic, like a core, um, a core thing that I know I've talked about a lot over the last like nine months on the show has been working on a process and devoting my time in ways that are more acutely focused. And that really resonated throughout like kind of the, the struggles of that, of having less time is, is really, it's not necessarily time, but attention that I could serve to have more of sometimes when I'm playing. Like if you're playing games on focus without paying attention, you like really miss things. Or if you're in a space where you're not able to pay full attention to the games you're playing, what's the quality of that uh, experience for you? And so, so I'm reflecting a lot on, on those things. And it's been like a, a lot to, to really chew on in the back of my head. I would definitely recommend it to anyone who listens to the show to, to give the book a read. So, but yeah, I've, I've just been thinking about that one a lot. That's awesome. I'll have to check that out. Um, sounds very interesting. Uh, my always improving moment comes from really diving into the new standard format. I'm playing the Chicago 75k at the Magic Con while Abe's busy winning the Pro Tour that weekend. So um, you know we'll just we'll just get it from all angles, you know. But joke aside, I really wanted to like explore and like try things out with uh, the Convoke deck because it seems very powerful right now in standard. Uh, and it's been really good. I've just been playing it a lot and, like, iterating and, like, changing things up. And it's something that I don't normally do a ton of, personally, where, you know, a lot of times I, like, play a little bit and I think a lot. But I've just been playing a lot of the actual Convoke deck and changing up cards constantly and trying different configurations of the deck, different mana bases, really diving deep into the format and seeing what's going on there. And it's been a good improving moment of, like, my a lot of my strengths, a lot of the 
deep knowledge I have on stuff really lends itself to like mid range, like basically every archetype but aggro. Like I think I can play aggressively slanted decks well and do that sort of thing, but they're definitely the ones I have the least experience with. So actually getting my hands on and figuring out like, okay, how does this deck play? How do I feel about it? You know, etc. has been really eye opening and helpful. And in a lot of ways, you know, understanding like cards like the case of the Gateway Express really lets you play like a kind of a tempo-y game if you play a bunch of like those in Witchstalker Frenzies was like really eye-opening and opened up like whole new like sideboard plans and configurations of the deck you know where at one point Abe I had like seven of those like basically two mana doom blades that you know allowed me to push my advantage and that was really strong against things like Rakdos and and so like it was a really interesting experience trying to do that and trying to learn that way and it's not something I normally do, and so it was good to just get more actual hands-on with the deck. Yeah, I think both those cards you mentioned are really good examples of cards that, like people, at least when I've talked to people about, most of the Convoke deck, honestly, and Pioneer being legal in, there with the exception of like a worse, like not having the same mana base with the same amount of reach, mm-hmm. just in the lands you play, has been that, oh yeah, you know, it's just like, it's all the same stuff, it's really good, but you get a lot of options for things that don't, have real convoke right like Witchstalker frenzy has convoke by attacking you know the the case you're talking about like has yeah case gateway express has an ability that counts for the number of creatures you have in play and then also like pumps your team if you meet the condition so it's just a really really cool way of also I, i imagine there could be a time pretty easily where like let's say shoulder gets really really big in pioneer again there's some x5 creature that really shuts down things and convoke a playable deck again like which sucker frenzy could move to top of the list of cards that you want to be playing and you might know that from having like jammed all these games instead and i think when it comes to preparing for like a huge tournament like the 75k in chicago um no matter what archetype you play really understanding not just the breadth of the format and like positioning of things but really having a deep knowledge from having played with all the configurations you can think of that are like worth getting into with any archetype mm-hmm. um is a really really big leg up that's something that i took away from alex madleton's pt top eight at i think it was pt guilds of ravnica with like the the experimental frenzy red deck just like experimental frenzy gruel or something and uh he talked about in his tournament report is like the only thing i did differently in this event than others was i played just every deck a ton and did all the things i normally do and i think that like it's really a valuable thing to like even though the process of like it's good to have the the macro theory process when you really do tune it up with uh with playing as much as it sounds like you are uh you you get some really great results yeah i'm excited also as a side note here before we put away did you know the case of the gateway express has the creature do the damage so, like, if you have Death Touch, you kill it with just one lifelink, you gain a life. And, like, let's say I had three creatures and you have an X3 and I play it, you cut down one, I don't kill your thing. Oh, interesting. But, like, if you were to cut down my Death Toucher, like, you'd cut down my one, but I had a Death Toucher, I gave my thing Death Touch, yeah. your thing would still die? Correct, yeah. Like, like oh, all, that's really all those, There's a lot of weird things with this card where it's, like, the... it's And when you read it, too, it... That reads that way, but I think a lot of people's brain just reads do damage equal to the number of creatures you have. That's really what it says, right? But it has says literally those creatures do the damage. Yeah, each creature you control deals one damage to the creature. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't figured out how to use that in standard. Like, obviously, if I was playing different colors, I could have, like, you know, a black-white deck where, you know, like, there's a sacrifice deck and you, like, death touch something or lifelink, you know, get a little extra value. But it's just something to keep in mind and, you know, 
don't know. That, that card and that deck is really good. But we're going to talk more about that next week when it comes to standard. But before we get into our main topic of talking about the RC, I do want to give a quick shout-out to our sponsor, Heavy Play. You can go to heavyplay.com and use code CCMTG to get 10% off. I recently kind of went and looked at some of the products, and, you know, I'm a big lover of, like, their deck boxes and stuff like that, and I just wanted to make sure that listeners knew, because I didn't realize there was two different types of games for the deck boxes, Abe. That's something that I didn't understand, because I was just given them all, you know, as you were, like, mm-hmm. the care package from them to, like, give us and try it out. I personally use the normal one. There's, like, it's, like, Heavy Play Deck Case, I think is the name, and then there's Heavy Play Deck Case Max. Both are good. You know, I'm happy to have them, but the normal one is the one that I use a lot of, and I just wanted to make sure that I was making that clear for listeners because uh, some of the other things can be a little pricey because these are high-quality materials, uh, and there's, like, nice magnets, and everything's really sturdy and really reliable. Really love the Heady Play products, but they can be a bit pricey, and I just wanted to make sure that I was letting listeners know they have a product that I was using uh, when I'm using their, you know, storage material. So which one is the one with the, uh, the like, wraparound magnet? The, the one where you, like, flip the case? That's the max. Okay, yeah. So I, I was going to say, kind of segueing into um, talking about my RC that we're talking about next. I actually used this event as my first opportunity to really play with and use some of the materials in the wild. I didn't use, like, the playmat and stuff because I'm just a traditionalist. I like my playmat. I have sentimental value with it. Uh, I like having it rolled up in my bag. I, I'm calling me old school, whatever. Um, it's just not, like, the, the whole, like, flat iPad, like, feeling like big mat not for me but i used the rounded sleeves and the the like smaller size of the the deck box max and i am in love with the deck box and i might be falling for the sleeves too because there's one thing that i don't think i really realized until i was perfect fitting my deck with the like rounded perfect fits as well I've never had a deck, I don't know if you've done this yet, Mason, but I've never had a deck double-sleeved as easily oh. as the rounded sleeves with the rounded perfects. <laughs> yeah, I actually, it's so funny. The first event I used them for was that SCG, and I changed decks. So I was going to play, like, the Esper control deck, and I switched over, and I had to re-double-sleeve my deck in one day, and it was actually so easy to change everything. And I had a friend over at my house, and, you know, they were helping me do it, and it was just like, wow, this is actually so easy. And it was funny that you mentioned that because it was actually the easiest one I've ever done to like de double sleeve and like move my deck around and everything, you know, including the like double sleeve part where I moved over like the cards that were double sleeved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that alone is a ring endorsement of the sleeves, which a lot of players that I did play against did ask me about when they like noticed or whatever. I've been playing against someone else who had them, a listener of the show. Um, we played, I think, uh, late on day one. But they also had them, and we were like, "Yeah, they're they're pretty sweet." So mm-hmm. shout out, shout out to you for being a fellow rounded sleeve truther. Hopefully, when you get more. Use the use the code CCMTG mm-hmm. and check out for your ten percent off. I, Anywho, I, I want to say really quick since we're talking about the sleeve because I feel like we don't bring it up enough. When you use the sleeves, they are you need to be very careful when you're shuffling, and you need to like not be super aggressive. Is what I would say. You know, like. They are still rounded, which, like, does... I personally really like the way they shuffle and is great. But it does mean, like, you need to be a little bit careful. I've seen some people have some frustration because of the way they shuffle. You know, I think it's different for everybody. 
And you just need to be, like, understanding that, like, you're having a little bit of care when you shuffle, but it's not so much that you're, like, being, like, delicate with it, right? Like, I'm sure you can attest to that. Like, you probably shuffle normally, but you also aren't someone that's, like, aggressively, like, riffling and, like, you know, flicking the cards incredibly fast. You know what I mean? Um, just I was wanting to have a moment to talk about that because I saw a lot of people talking about that over the course of the weekend on social media. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually had my first, like, I had, like, four or five breaks. I was, like, I was hitting the corners together too hard when I was shuffling, and once I eased up, I had no problems. They were really great. And, like, talking to the people at the booth there this weekend, they were, like, super receptive to all this feedback, really just excited to, to hear people talking about using the product and stuff, too. Tell me about your RC experience this weekend. That's the point of this week's show. We're going to talk about your experience, talk about the RC Denver in general, a little bit modern, but I want to hear about your time at the RC. Let's see. My RC was, I mean, it was pretty stock. I played stock rhinos after quite a bit of deliberation. Didn't really have a ton of time to work on like a hammer list. Like I talked about maybe doing a couple weeks ago, um, just because of like stuff in my personal life and also the positioning of the metagame because of the Ogmoth deck. It, it was just, there was too many problems to solve for it. So I wound up going with uh tried and true rhinos. Only change I really made from stock was that, like, we played, me and uh, my friend Joel played the exact same 75 after, like, working on it for uh, for most of the week. We, like, played 22 lands and cut a Blood Moon effect from the sideboard to kind of still fit in everything we wanted by moving, like, one of the three Flame of Anors, uh into that slot. And the deck just felt really, really good, honestly. Like, the matches I lost... I lost to Yawgmoth, where their hand contained exactly a Yawgmoth, Hepatra, and Shieldred. And I got them down to two life exactly, so they were able to like, combo me by having the Yawgmoth in play, and then like casting the Hepatra and Shieldred to, to combo off and, and end the game. I lost to like just mulliganing a lot in a mirror match, where like, I just never had a chance. I lost, like, a nail-biter to, like, Merfolk, and then, like, another rematch match where I just got drawn, and to uh, Yagma. So it was, like, kind of how I felt like tournament could go. I think Rhinos is that kind of deck where you're signing up for. Sometimes your draws just can get beat, especially in the mirror match. Like, there are things you can do to maneuver, but in some of the games, you just get got. Uh, and definitely with a deck like Rhinos, where you kind of are mulliganing aggressively, sometimes it just doesn't come together. I will say that, like... There were some really cool archetypes out there I played against. I played against like two different builds of Blue Black Shadow. One with like kind of a scam package, Dothy Void Walkers, and then like some Drown in the Lock and like cheap blue counter magic, uh, and like Murktide Regent. The other one, more of like a counter spell Death Shadow deck. Both really, really interesting. I like played some sweet games against that one where I got like my crashing I saw they had surgical extraction on their sideboard. So I had to keep hands in games two and three that had crashing footfalls to be suspended. So that, that way, when I went and was fighting over the cascaded ones, I still had a chance of having one in exile to then rebuy with my endurances. So it was like a really, really cool song and dance in a lot of the games. Like I feel like people talk down, and a lot of people I talked to who chose not to play rhinos or just played different decks or didn't want to play rhinos specifically because the kind of deck it is. Really discounted how much play there was to it, and I really felt like I had a really good time playing and maneuvering the games. I had some really, really interesting spots, especially against the like outsides of the format, as well as I really benefited from taking the time with uh, with my friend Jarvis Yu, friend of the show, who was playing Yogmoth 
and also playing against the some game against Zachary Keeney, who was playing Yawgmoth in the tournament, uh, to just like really understand the positions that mattered in that matchup. And it paid off. So I played against Yogg, I think, like five or six times in the tournament. Uh, I was deck of playing against the most. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, the way the tournament played out, obviously Rhinos won, uh, but it was just the most played deck. And for the reason of, as we've been talking about for a couple weeks now, it just kind of has a good matchup spread against the rest of the top of the metagame. I didn't really play against many decks that were dedicated to like their game plan coming in the tournament was like, I'm going to have a good Rhinos matchup, like people playing Living End or, or things like that. I learned some really cool things on the fly. Like, I play against Amulet Titan. You might know this, Mason. That Have you ever tried to plan playing Amulet versus uh, Rhinos where you just don't cast spells and just chain sagas? I have done it like once, basically, I think. Where I just like had the hard read out of or whatever, and I just made constructs and put a shot, like, just made them big. Is that what are talking about? Like, I don't yeah, so my opponent. I can't look at I, I played against. I played against a rhinos, or no, sorry, I played against a uh, amulet opponent who, like, played a turn two saga, made a construct, made a construct, got a map, map for saga. Like, wasn't putting anything on the stack that I would want to fight over, but was constantly threatening it. Once they had an amulet in play, uh, or like had the saga ticking up to be able to do that. And I just couldn't get through because all of a sudden my opponent had like five five saga tokens and was like beating me down. I had to start spending my tide binders and stuff on like chapter twos to to try to keep it under control. And it was just really interesting. Like I'd never seen a player take that approach, and it felt really strong. And I was like definitely back against the wall there going into games two and three because it was an approach I had not seen and didn't know. Even though I knew conventional wisdom was for them to take out take out their sagas against rhinos that like they might stick to that plan. I think if they had in game three, they probably got me because I didn't board in things like force of vigor. Or they would have had a chance to, but I was able to squeak that one out. But yeah, I went up like four O to I mean either three or four O to like X two to having it locked up in the last round, losing to Merfolk and then needing a five O on day two to make the Pro Tour. Again, and, and, and chain the invites, and then I just, like, lost Rhino's Mirror, lost the next one to be dead for cash, played out the rest because I was really enjoying myself, like, as much as kind of this is the last, like, could be the last event where Modern really looks like this, that people are going to be playing on a large scale because of the release of Modern Horizons 3. It was just still a really, really fun time playing the format, and uh, I just... Just had a blast. I also got to watch my friend. Big shout out to uh, Andrew Vorl, who made top four with uh, his five color creativity deck. Uh, lost playing for uh, the world's invite to the eventual winner. And yeah, I mean the whole thing was just a, a real roller coaster, and it was great to just see, as always, see so many people, meet a couple of listeners, um, you know, get to play some some high level magic, and and see a lot of the the faces of. I'm not going to say yesteryear, we're not that far removed from, like, those times, but but see a lot of the a lot of the faces, but also, for the first time in a long time experience, really, like, murmurs and mourning of, kind of, like, innovations at the tournament, like, the Leyline Rhinos deck, and kind of, like, building out plans for that once we'd already submitted deck lists and started to see that it was, like, a thing. So, yeah, it was just all in all, like, a really, really sweet tournament. Um, you know, not at all upset with, you know, a 144th place or whatever it is I got. I didn't even check. 
uh, like X5 at, at the RC and, you know, it wasn't my, my day on day two, but overall felt really, really good about how I played and really good about the format. I don't know what your perspective was on a lot of the things going on towards the top tables since you were doing coverage, but that was kind of just, you know, an RC through the, through the eyes of a Rhinos player. Deck was just really good, and, and if you have any modern events coming up, I would still, you know, implore you to play it. It looks like the results from around the world uh, over the weekend said about the same thing, too. Rhinos, Rhinos is just good. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting, like, from the booth perspective, because... I covered rounds one through three and then 13, 14, which are the beginning rounds and the win it in rounds. So, like, we start off the day watching LSV play Domain Rhinos, for example. That was, like, how it started. And it looked very impressive. And then I didn't really see Rhinos anymore because we tried to use the rest of the early rounds to highlight stuff. And then, you know, Rhinos did ultimately end up winning the tournament. And we saw one match, I guess, of Twinless Twin versus Min, who was the eventual winner. Um, we saw their win and end. But the rest of our matches, you know, because we covered, like, two around, they were all, like, controlling decks. Like, we saw Collins Mullins bring, like, Lutri, you know? We watched that in round one. And I think he ultimately ended up going, like, X4 or something like that. Um, he also x 5 yeah. He x 5 okay, yeah. So, like... You know, he didn't end up having the tournament he wanted to have, but, like, did it kind of well. And then, like, we saw Jody Keys play the Martyr Control deck. And then, like, we watched a four-color mirror where, like, one was more mid-rangey and one was very, like, control counterspell heavy, like I like, you know. Um, and, like, we saw that kind of stuff. And not a whole lot else, just because, like, those were the matches that we, like, were able to cover because everyone else kind of, like, had clean draw ends, you know? And it's like, okay, well, these are the ones that we can watch. So I have a weird perspective on it from that angle. And then, you know, uh, just being transparent, after I got done on Saturday, I went and worked out and then went to a local cube night down here at my LGS. And so I didn't really get to see much more of Saturday. Uh, so I didn't get to see a lot of, like, what the viewers saw in that regard. Because I just had a busy day on Saturday. But I know that my big takeaway from the event, uh, looking at everything, is, like, Rhinos is good. That is for sure true. It looks like Domain Rhinos is incredibly strong. It won the 10K um, that happened the next day on Sunday. Um, it had a very good win rate. Uh, you could argue that, like, yeah, like, people like LSV played it, and that's going to, like, you know, make its win rate stronger or whatever that it's supposed to. But even if you, like, I don't know, you account for the LSV factor in my head, still seems to be as good, if not better, than Teamer Rhinos. So I think, you know, at worst, it looks to be, like, a reasonable deck. And to me, Yawgmoth still seems like the deck I would tell you to play. Um, you have to figure out how to play against the Teamer Rhinos matchup. But watching, like, Zerk play that matchup uh, and, like, a couple other people um, and, like, talking to some people and coaching and preparing for it, I think that there are just things that a lot of people aren't doing, like not activating your wall roots unless like you have something that actually matters then like getting on like getting something down sooner matters and then just like setting up to like play your dog pro, uh sack something sack something and proliferate right away and doing that kind of stuff i think really matters a lot and the matchup is like not good for you but it is i think a little overblown after seeing some stuff and also i think a lot of Yawgmoth players just did it kind of wrong this weekend, you know, when it came to their decks. This was a thing that, like, there was a lot of debate about and talk about among players. And, like, I know I'm personally in the camp of, like, 
23 lands, 22 if you don't count Dryad Arbor. I think it's possible you're supposed to be playing Ignoble Hierarch again. I saw Pardee and Matt Nass do it. I think it made sense that, like, this is probably the worst weekend for Bowmasters outside of the Mirror. Um, and I think just also they had a really clean mana base, too. I don't know if you were able to see their decks and look at it. That was one thing from coverage was kind of looking around at that stuff. And they just, like, went and cut a lot of the nonsense lands, you know, like Nurturing Peatland, um, Takanuma, Twilight Mire, and just played eight fetches and two Mortuary Mires. Um, and just had those two surveil lands and just, like, we're like, hey, we're playing a lot of lands. We're going to trim, you know, our, like, Fulminator Mage tech weird, weirdo spot and just play another land because our deck needs the mana. Um, and I thought that was really smart. And so, I don't know, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff. And I think Insidious Roots was pretty good in their deck, too, which was, like, something I was a little skeptical of that I thought it might be asking too much of you. But I think just kind of having one opens up a lot of lines just like Apatra does. So, I don't know. That, that was kind of my, my view on the RC. Yeah, I mean, to go a little bit deeper on the, like, Yogg, the mm-hmm. Rhino stuff, like I said, I played against a lot of times, and I did, like, a decent amount of talking and thinking about the matchup before the tournament. That was, like, a lot of my night prior work outside of figuring out my sideboard plans when we were figuring out, like, our 15th card at 5 p.m. before deckless submission, is that, like, the matchup is good for Rhinos, but it's, like, the same way that the... Maybe not Hammer. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is like Hammer v. Murktide was, where, like, the game starts in Rhino's advantage if both game plans, if, like, both decks are having their plan A, because, like, having Rhino's on turn three does put a ton of pressure on the Yogg opponent. But Yogg has, like, two states in which I believe they're very far ahead. One is if they have a Grist resolved, plussed, and then are untapping with it and the Insect Token. If they're doing that, then they are, like, I would say very much in the driver's seat, and it's going to take Rhinos fighting uphill to try to turn that game around. And B is having a Yawgmoth and two creatures and have Yawgmoth resolve, almost no matter what the board is. Unless it's, like, on the draw on turn four into, like, double Rhinos or something like that. And otherwise, like, if the... Rhino's player stumbles at all, can't answer a halfling, has outburst on turn three, but maybe not a uh, shardless, or like doesn't even have a way to make Rhino's on turn three, then I think Yogmoth is very able to take the game. Like, you almost need to do that for Rhino's. The impetus is on Rhino's to do that because they have no other game plan, whereas the fail rate on Yogg, I think, is, is much higher. So the thing I'm going to ask you is, so on, I don't normally track my die rolls, but <laughs> it happened to me that I was, uh, I won four die rolls of 14 rounds. I lost 10. Now, in those 10 matches I was on the draw, Mason, I spent five of them in game one with a gemstone caverns in play <laughs> on turn one with a luck counter. Nice. How many die rolls did I win? You only won four, but you won in deck building five times. I, I just couldn't figure out, like, because I didn't win my first die roll until maybe around seven. So it was, like, comical walking around being like, guys, I lost the die roll again. <laughs> also, I had my gemstone caverns. <laughs> After I'd, like, spent the night, like, the day before building my mana base being like, can I cut this gemstone caverns? Like, how often is it going to happen? <laughs> and it just happened a lot. It was really, really, really good. <laughs> and, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, they call it a luck counter for a reason. Right? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I lost the die roll in my, in my first round and my opponent, like playing blue black shadow, like keep seven. I look at my hand with a gemstone caverns. I'm tanking about what card I'm going to bin. I'm like, yeah, I'll keep. And they're like, they call like doing the player rounds. They call like, no, 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 you didn't win that die roll. I stole it from you. And then we're off the races. So, so it's like, I don't know. I just don't know how many die rolls I won or lost. If you have opinions, listeners, leave them in the comments. But um, there was that. I do think, like, as the front moves forward, though, on a more serious note, outside of my die rolls, um, like the four-color Rhinos decks, I think that one of the things that helped out my friend Andy with his creativity deck and getting to... Um, like making it into the top eight, he like came in at X two on um, on day two, and then just like won six matches in a row to make top four. Was that he played against the Leyline Rhinos deck a little bit more than the regular Rhinos deck, and I think that because kind of the strength of the Rainbow Rhinos deck is to have better threats that come down sooner at the cost of interaction, especially when. Like, Archon Trigger does not care about the Hexproof that Scion gives. Um, that is a pretty real vulnerability of the way the deck is built right now. That I think it has an issue with, like, being a little bit softer to, like, those decks. And it wouldn't surprise me too much if creativity continued to be on an uptick because of that. I think also after watching Andy's matches... And hearing him talk about them, I underestimated kind of the weird games you play. I often had thought about the the creativity deck in like a, oh, you know, you're kind of like, you know, ABC playing your game out and then like comboing off, like, you know, getting Archons into play. And I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. The amount of times I heard him telling stories about games where he just like Emblem the Renin Six or like, you know, had his opponent stuck under Teferi long enough to then like do that or just hardcast Archon and those games like coming up and happening. I didn't really appreciate until like, you know, talking over his tournament with him to understand like and like hear the stories and everything of how he made top eight and getting that perspective. And I think it gave me a new like appreciation for the positioning of creativity in this format. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I could see there still being room for things to change as these decks become known quantities and things like uh, things like Living End, uh, you know, kind of wax and wane. And the Cascade decks like are good and then bad, or I guess like you know get hated out more or less. But yeah, it was just something else that I uh, I ran into. I thought was uh, or like that was floating around my head after this event with so much unknown. And with so much innovation around, like, just some of the new cards popping up in their most powerful applications, um, like, what it means for, for modern moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is an interesting place to be. Here's a question for you. I tweeted this yesterday, and it got some you know, got some people talking, and I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. My big thought was, I remember people used to just have Scion of Draco in their Rhinos deck, right? Like, that was just a thing people did. Back during the Yorion days, everyone was like, oh, it wasn't really good enough. But, like, those were the Yorion days where, like, Fury was around, too. And I always just wonder if, like, you're talking about, like, a hole in the game right now of the Rhinos deck, the domain one, is, like, how it can't cover certain things. It's like, well, what if it just stopped trying to high roll with Draco and just played Draco as, like, 
hey, I'm a more, like, aggressive Rhinos deck, and I don't, like, worry about, like, you know, having all the interaction, but I still have a bit more than the, like, five-color Leyline builds do. Do you think there's anything to that, or do you think I'm kind of just, like, not... I think you need the Leyline for... Like, I think without Leyline, Scion is, like, not worth playing, because... If it doesn't have hexproof, it's just not good. Mm-hmm. Like the real value in having it is having the five color scion just be like an unkillable, unbeatable, unraceable threat in the mirrors. And I think that was a lot of the strength of the deck was that it just put people to the test of here is a card you cannot kill. All the cards you normally play to answer sign of Draco do not work. It has hexproof until you kill the ley line. So you have to like, and you can't kill them both at once. Like, you can't force or figure me out of this. You have to like, Force or besage you or whatever effect my enchantment and then get my my thing and then also all the other creatures I have also have a rainbow of abilities. And as much as I personally don't like structurally the way that that deck is built, I just don't like decks that are really trying to high roll openers um, all too much. As much as I was just talking about Gemstone Cavern saving me hmm. like five out of five out of ten matches. Um, and we played Mono Green for like six months in Pioneer and. Whoa, 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 whoa. That deck was just good and consistent. It was not, that's not a high roll mulliganing deck. That's like, this is like the difference between playing like Dredge and playing, or maybe playing like a deck like Dredge Vine and playing a deck like Dredge. Sure. Playing a deck like Dredge, your game plan is consistent and you're doing, uh, you know, you have like a lot of cards that function in the same way and you have like your whole game plan and a lot of your slots taken up by cards that let you do that. Versus something where it's like, okay, I just need to have an opener where I'm going to hopefully flip the cards I need. And then, like, do the thing. It's going to be really powerful in the short term. Where I feel like with this Wayline Rhinos deck, just structurally, I didn't get a chance to play with it. But looking at it, I fear for just, you're really banking on Scion plus Leyline to be, like, another kind of free win situation as, you know, I have Rhinos on turn three with Force Backup or whatever it is that, makes Rhino's free wins happen. All right. I think that's fair. It's reasonable. I was just curious, you know, there's a, a thing that isn't so clear to me, but is believable when talking to people about it, you know? Yeah. I think if Leyline Binding got better, I could see a world where that's the case. Sure. Or like you play like maybe not four Leylines, but you play like one or two is like a rainbow pitchable that might turn on your Scions. But it would also be a world where the removal is not good against Scion. Like, you want to be able to play Scion and Leyland Binding, and you need more threats, and, like, maybe Murktide region isn't good, mm-hmm. so you want to be able to, like, fetch Triumphs. I think also the Surveil Lands, you touched on it with, um, with Yawgmoth and, like, Matt Nass and Sam Pardee rebuilding their mana base to have more Surveil Lands. I played two Surveil Lands in Rhinos, and they were so good. Like, that deck, a little bit of card selection goes a long way because you have, like, next to none. Mm-hmm. And I would not be surprised if those lands continue to be, like... Like, they start to get adopted in Pioneer, um, like, in the place of some of the cycling lands, even. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if just, like, finding a way to play one or maybe two, depending on the deck, in most modern decks, especially, like, most fetch line modern decks, just becomes the norm. Uh, it... It was very impressive in seeing a lot of them around. It wasn't necessarily like, it didn't feel surprising to see so many adopted, but how good it was and how much it 
made certain decks, and especially Rhinos for me, feel a lot more consistent than I had been used to in the games we were testing um, before them was really, really remarkable. Yeah, I think Rhinos is a weird case of, like, that does so little in the early turns, right? And then also in the late game appreciates the surveil so much, you know what I mean? Um, more like when you're like looking for a specific thing, like you said, there's so little of it. I do think that like it is a thing where you need to be adding lands to your deck, or like you need to not be reducing the number of untapped lands you have, I think, is what I basically would say. Right? Like this is the thing I've heard people talk about, it's just like, oh, turn a shock into a surveil, basically. And I think that is not the way I would go about it. But if you're like wanting to take one of your weird flex slots out of Murktide and just be like, I'm going up a land. You know what I mean? I think that is something. And it's funny, you know, Twinless Twin, actually, we were, uh, Max, we were watching his win then, and AB had the perfect hand. It was like Ragavan and, you know, Spell Pierces and Flusters and, uh, you know, some Preordains and, like, another threat and the Surveil land. And he was on the play and just had the mulligan. You know, and he went up a land. He was at 19 instead of 18, which is, like, the right way to do things. So, like, in a world where he wasn't playing that land, it just would have been an obvious mulligan. You know what I mean? Like, he would have had no lands. Yeah. But I do think that there's something to be said about, like, it needs, it is filling kind of this half role of, like, I am a land that, like, because having, being a tap land is a cost in modern, right? Like, in the early turns uh, for lots of decks. But for rhinos, it is not. And for living end, you know, like, I think that deck often really wants a lot of mana and which is a weird thing to say about it but like it kind of does and like taking your worst cycler and taking whichever the worst one is and making it a you know surveil land i think goes a long way in that deck yeah i mean i know jacob nagro was talking on twitter about he he initially was very strongly against Mm -hmm. playing surveil lands and then by the end of the tournament he was like i could see the merit in one but he still wasn't like entirely sold and his his opinion carries a lot of weight to me. He's a very 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 good player, but it's it's really true that you know like maybe it's like cut your Ottawara rather than or like cut your whatever last canters maybe like your fourth bauble if you're low on bauble in in uh, Murktide or something. Or for me like like I said in my Rhino seventy five, we cut a Blood Moon effect from the sideboard to move one of the two Flame Venors to the sideboard instead of it to play a 20-second land in the main deck to have the Surveil lands, like, and have two of them, because it was just so good to not only fetch them early, but fetch them on, like, on your fourth turn, because you really, all your stuff costs three or two. Mm-hmm. So, like, your fourth mana coming into play tap was really okay. Um, and Surveilling, once you knew how your Rhino situation went out, especially in the post-board games, was just very, very strong. Um so, yeah, I, I just think those things are, are here to stay, and, and finding out how to kind of restructure the decks to play them is going to be a bit of a challenge, but it's definitely, like, you know, maybe not exactly one-to-one with, like, a canopy land, depending on your deck. Like, Fiery Islet can do things Surveil End can't do, but Surveil End can do things like that Fiery Islet can't do, like, get fetched. So it's, uh, it's a really interesting balancing act. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's going to do it for... The RC proper today. Abe, unless there's anything you really wanted to talk about here before we headed out. No, no, I think I think that's uh really all of it. It was kind of 
kind of relieving to feel good about my deck choice and feel good about how I played after really having my time divided between, you know, real life stuff and this event and, uh, you know, the upcoming pro tour, uh, like with limited and pioneer on my brain. And so, you know, it was kind of just would have been nice to do better, but I can't really be unhappy with the, with the result. And I feel like I played really well. So it was actually pretty affirming to feel like, okay, even though I have all this stuff on my plate, I'm still, still staying sharp. And, and if not playing even like a little bit better than I was, um, like, you know, if I looked at an event this time, 12 months ago, I feel like I was playing a bit sharper maybe than I even was then. So it's, it's been, been a good feeling. Uh, it was a good event. And, uh, yeah, onward to the PT for me. Awesome. Love it. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. That's where you become a patron of the show. And you get a couple of benefits. There's a Discord. A lot of people are talking. And another one is you get to ask Patreon questions like this one. And our Patreon question is, what is our favorite card from Murders at Karlov Manor? Uh, Abe, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to ban us from saying the Surveillance. Okay, I'm going to have to pull up the... Okay, well, since Abe's pulled up, I will, I'll talk for a second. I have that one. Uh, since I... Since I, I, I can't talk about my... I, I just don't want to bring up my favorites from... Pioneer? From the set review. Oh, sure, sure, sure. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'll say this. The case of the Gateway Express has been my favorite one so far. Um, that, in case the Crimson Pulse, I just... I think I somehow shorthanded to they all sacrifice themselves when you got it solved. And so I just, like, read those cards and just read it as, like, oh, you, like, play the case. It, like, kills something. You attack. It sacks. And all your guys get plus one, plus zero for the turn, which is, like, pretty good, right? Like, I would be interested in playing that card sometimes, but I didn't quite get it. And I just, like, misread the card. And same with Case of the Crimson Pulse. I thought it was discard one, draw two, and then when you empty your hand... On your next upkeep, you'll discard your hand and then, you know, draw two cards and then sack the case. And those two cards are both very powerful, very fun to build around and play with in different ways. And I've had a great time playing them in standard. I've been playing some NT with Case of the Crimson Pulse, Abe. You get to really, you know, if you don't play all your cards, it's all right. NT will give you another, you know, a redo as well. Oh, I bet you deck real fast. You, you move through your deck incredibly quickly. Luckily, Archery to Dross kills people even quicker. That's just true. What about yourself? Uh, okay. I've taken a look, and I'm going to say my favorite card so far, as of this moment, is Case of the Locked Hothouse, okay. which is the green case where you can play an extra land on each of your turns, and then when you control seven more lands, it's solved. And then I didn't realize you could play lands off top of this library with this thing, but you get to, like play lands, creatures, and enchantments off the top of your library, and you get two land drops. So I played against this in Limited when I was testing for um, for the PT after the RC, and one of my teammates had it in their deck. And when I say that, like, they drafted it early, so they built the deck around it, but when I say that I thought the only way I could win was decking, um, <laughs> I mean it. They literally, they, they must have played, like, six cards a turn. Because they were playing two lands off the top of their deck, casting the creatures, like, playing disguised creatures for cheap. Like, they had, like, nine nine mana the next turn, then, like, 11 mana, and, and they were just playing everything rolling off the top. And it was incredibly impressive, and it made me feel like I wanted to do that. So, 
for right now, I'm going to say that's that's my favorite. Um, many, many, many close seconds that I've had good experiences with. Just in terms of draft, which is where I've been experiencing the set a lot so far. But, yeah, that's... Uh, that's what I that's what I put it on right now. Nice. Another way you can support the show is go to uh, YouTube. Uh, you can go to Constructed Criticism on YouTube, and you can like, comment, and review there. Same on like Spotify and Apple and all the other podcast places. That stuff really helps push us in the algorithm, and that's a great way to support the show for free. Uh, no YouTube comment this week, but we do sort of read one of those out on the show, so you can engage there and maybe get your question around the show. If you can't become a patron right now, just don't want to. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CCMTG to get updates on the show and various other things. Uh, you can follow Spencer, who isn't here uh, today because he is sick, at Heasy Games. And Abe, where can they find you? Uh, people can follow me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Still doing my song a day thing, which has been really fun. I really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and also, I guess, now becoming a book recommender, as I talked about the book a lot today, too. Uh, how about you, Mason? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Mason E. Clark. If you want to reach out for coaching, you can uh, via there or my email, MasonEClark at gmail.com. You can find me at twitch.tv slash TheMasonClark. You can find me on commentary this weekend for NRG for both the Standard and Pioneer events, so I'll be over there. And you can read my article on TCG Player this week where I'll be writing about the RC when it comes to modern. So if you're someone whose region still has an RC coming up, I know a couple of those are around, you might want to check that out as well. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructor Chrism, and we'll be back next week for another episode of CCMTG.